Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Uh, okay, so the next three weeks we're going to talk about a biblical vision of this thing called work. And we're going to talk about it for at least at minimum for two reasons. Um, for the prevalence of work in our life and our ambivalence toward work in our life. What I mean by prevalence is, why are you here? What is the main thing you do during your waking hours? Labor, right? Work in some capacity. Uh, it, work By work, I mean something that extends beyond simply schoolwork or your job. Uh, working in the yard is work. Cooking is work. A sports team is certainly work. Laundry is work. Hygiene is work. Taxes are work. Uh, work is the air we breathe. It's the main thing you're doing all the time. It's certainly the thing you think about and talk about all the time on campus. It's the way we identify ourselves. What's your major? What do you do? Right? Those are the next two things after learning someone's name. So it's prevalent. It's, it's, uh, it's, our, our whole life seems to be about it a lot of times. It's the main thing we do and think about and talk about. Um, it's why you're here. So it's prevalence, but also our ambivalence about work. And what I mean by that is we're of two minds about it. Do y'all love Stanford? Do you love the work here? Sometimes. Do you hate Stanford? Do you hate the work here? Yes, sometimes, right? We're of two minds. Don't you love your work sometimes? Don't you hate it sometimes? Do you have a lot of hope that you place in what you do? Yeah. Do you also experience a lot of despair over figuring out what you do? Right? Are you completely controlled by it at times? Do you long for freedom from it at times? Are you kind of sometimes alive when work is exciting? Sometimes you feel like it's killing you? That's what I mean by ambivalence. We can't figure out how we feel about work, right? Uh, it's a place where we put a ton of hope. Uh, it's, a, it's something that costs us a lot, right? So I think it's worthy of talking about for at least three weeks. Maybe we should talk about it four. So, But here's what we're going to do for the three weeks just to kind of tell you where we're going. This week I want to talk about the original design for work. We're going to look at Genesis and the story of creation. And in that story we get God's kind of DNA or architecture for how this thing called existence was supposed to go and how we were to engage it, especially with regard to our work. So we're going to talk about the original design God has for work. Next week we're going to talk about our dysfunctional relationship with work. We all acknowledge that there's something broken in our relationship with work. And then third week, we're going to talk about restoring and redeeming this thing called work. So tonight, I want us to see in Genesis the original paradigm for thinking about work. It might sound new to you, but I would encourage you to consider that maybe this is the original idea or purpose. And what I hope that you sense, here's what I hope happens in three weeks, is tonight, you feel like, if I believe that, that sounds really idealistic. And and when I consider that, yeah, that sounds great. It sounds like it could even be right, but insanely idealistic, like too idealistic, scary idealistic. You know what I mean by this? Um, And that's okay. It's okay to be scary idealistic. Next week, we're going to talk about our dysfunctional relationship with work. What I hope we kind of begin to enter into is like, man, can it ever get better, right? Because there's a lot of things broken about it. And the third week, I hope that we actually have a pragmatic, develop a pragmatic relationship with work. Okay, here's a way forward to be healthy in it. Um, so, 
there's some cliffhangers before we get to week three. We're going to accept that a little bit. Um, I'm going to read from Genesis 1 and 2. These are the creation account God that uh, Scripture gives us that teach us a little bit about our relationship with God, His relationship with us, and our relationship with work inside of that paradigm. So this is Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our own likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and uh, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him. Male and female, God created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2.1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, rested from his seventh day from all the work that he had done. And actually it goes on to say, and then he set man in the garden to care for it and to work it. That's not in there, but it's in the text. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, as we consider it, it might be new to some of us, it might be old to some of us, it might be frustrating to some of us, it might be life-giving to some of us. But we pray that your Holy Spirit would attend to your word as we consider it and talk about it, and that it would attend to our hearts, and that you would open us up to the possibility of thinking in new and fresh ways about our life and our work, and our work and our relationship to you. So be with us and teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, So I want you to think about two words tonight as we think about the original purpose of work. We could certainly spend a lot more time on it. These two words, I hope, capture some big uh, kind of broad strokes of what work is. But I want you to think about work as imaging and work as service and begin to kind of contemplate what it would look like for work to be thought of in those categories. Service is maybe a little bit more accessible. Imaging is one that maybe is new for you, haven't thought about. But let's talk about that one first. Work is imaging. In the creation account, God labors, if you had read the rest of Genesis 1, to bring about order and beauty. The first thing we learn about God is that he makes stuff. And when he's done, he says, now let's make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And it says, so God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him. The way Hebrew writers would emphasize a point is by repetition. So you hear that word showing up. Image, image, image. God's made, uh, let us make man in our image, in the image of God. God created him. In verse 28, it says to man, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. And the first point I want to make is this, is to be made in God's image is a big theological concept in Scripture, and it involves certainly more things than this. But obviously a huge component of it is work. That in the, the very first command that God gives Scripture is multiply and make beautiful things and have dominion and work the creation. That's the first command God gives to man. And it's bound up in this very same moment in Scripture with this thing that God's made us in His image. I've made you in my image, I've made you in my image, I'm making man in my image, have dominion, subdue. So he's connecting this idea of image and this idea of work. That to be made in God's image, one of the significant components of that is to subdue and to have dominion, to work. That's what the Hebrew author's getting after. That's a significant component of the way that we're designed. The first thing we see God do is making things, 
creating things, organizing things, working. Part of what it means then to be made in His image is that we're also tasked with work. Genesis 2 goes on to say, the Lord God took man, put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Now what do we mean when we say to work is to image? It means that part of your creational design, being made in the image of God, who is a creative and a working God. Um, in college and in grad school, on two different occasions, when like anybody ever had their summer plans fall through, right? Didn't get like the prestigious internship or what I wanted to do. And uh, on two different occasions, what I did is at the beginning of June, I opened up the Yellow Pages and called landscaping companies until I got a landscaping job. And I love those two summers. They were the most rewarding summers I had uh, during college and during grad school. And the reason is because this is what happened on Mondays during those work weeks. On Monday, I would gather with anywhere from two to six other guys, and we would gather shovels, we would get gravel, we would get soil, we would get plants, we would get seeds, we would get sod. Then we would use our minds and our imagination and our bodies and work together as a team with all kinds of different skills. And we took uncultivated, raw materials, pile of soil, pile of stones, seeds, water, shovels, and we created something completely new and completely beautiful. And on Friday, we would put our shovel down and we had made something beautiful together. This is the most rewarding two seasons of my life. And y'all, you've probably experienced that to some degree, the, the time that work worked. I've talked to CS majors before when y'all take whatever the crazy class is, CS 107, where you like work through that, I don't even know how to use the right words to describe what you're doing, but you work through the code and it's not working, you work through the code and it's not working and it's not working and it's not working and then finally you find the glitch and you hit run or execute or whatever the term is and it works and work works. You remember that moment and you celebrated and you screamed like to a Tagovela threw a 41-yard touchdown against Georgia in double over, or in overtime last night, right? Y'all know that scream. You have it, too. I'm an Alabama fan. For those of y'all who haven't been here, stuff happened last night. The bad guys won. I cheered for the bad guys. But you know that moment when work worked for you. Uh, the satisfaction. And that joy, that satisfaction you experienced is telling you something. You are made to work. And when you do it, and it works, that delight is not a coincidence. It is actually a spiritual experience of having imaged the Creator after whom you were designed. That feeling, maybe you've never named it, what you're feeling is the feeling of making your dad proud because you imitated something about him that you and he love together. That's what it means to image. Think about it like this. My, I have four daughters. They play soccer. Soccer is what I played growing up. It's a sport I love to play. And, uh, and they practice at home, and their favorite thing right now is to beat their juggling record, how many touches they can keep it in the air. And so they juggle at home, and when they break their record, they come screaming inside the house, and they say, Dad, look, Dad, look, Dad, look. And they take us outside, and they juggle in front of us. And I watch, and it's complete delight for me. And it's complete delight for her as I watch. 
but it's complete delight for two reasons, not one. You think it's one, but that's not true. It's complete delight for two reasons. One, because of the excellence of the work itself. See, we all think that's the only reason there's delight. They've performed excellently. It's beautiful. But there's a second reason interrelated with that. It's the fact that she's pursuing excellence in the thing that I played. She's imaging me. To work is to understand, to craft, to create, to grow, to sustain, manage, and care for things and people in a way that brings justice and beauty just like your Heavenly Father does. couple of things that means about work. First of all, work was in the world before evil was. Before sin and brokenness and dysfunction came into the world, work was a part of the original design. Work was not originally a drudgery or a necessary evil. That's something that happened to us in our relation. Something has happened to us and to our relation with work that's made it that way. We're going to talk about that next week. But we all know work has potential for wonder and for meaning. It was originally good, and it still can be. Secondly, here's an amazing thing about work. Tim Keller points this out in his book, Every Good Endeavor, which if you're looking for something to read on this matter, it's the best one out there right now. It's one of the few things work that we can handle in large doses, right? So many good things like food, like alcohol, like leisure, like sex, like Alabama national championships, those things are to be enjoyed in moderation, right? And if we don't enjoy them in moderation, they destroy us. Work is really different in the Bible. It's so central that actually in the commandment about rest in the Ten Commandments, God actually says, hey, work is something you should do six days out of seven. It's the only thing God commends in huge doses. That's a big deal. Here's a third thing about work. To be God's image in the world actually means that we're stewards of His creation. That means He made this world, gave it to our care, This means Christians should be the foremost environmentalists. What we are are stewards of his authority and power that as we work and cultivate and beautify and care his creation, we are to make it beautiful. It means we actually have to care about this world. Here's another thing this means about work. This means, here's the big one that might be hard to process. Work is valuable regardless of compensation. This dignifies all work. This dignifies all types of workers. We're going to talk about that more next week, but here's one of the ways you can know for sure that you have a warped and dysfunctional and ultimately very unhappy relationship with work is when you value it according to the compensation it provides. If you can only value work according to compensation, guess what that means? You don't value work. Many people have taken work they can neither love nor value because they love the money it provides. The biblical vision of work says that there's inherent joy and delight when you understand and then craft and grow and sustain and manage and care for things and people that bring justice and beauty in the world. That is good because it's good. That's why it's good. It's not good because you get a paycheck. It's good because it's good. Working for justice means this. means that in your work, you take sad or wrong things and make them right. 
So a lawyer defends the innocent, a lawyer prosecutes the guilty. A medical professional labors to heal. A researcher labors for cures. A teacher brings understanding to young people. A philosopher thinks about the well-lived life. A policy writer thinks about fair governance. A life insurance company cares for a family in distress. HR takes care of employees. All of these are matters of justice. Working for beauty, justice means you take sad or wrong things and make them right. Working for beauty means you take raw materials and make something pleasing. A farmer grows strawberries, an engineer builds bridges, a scientist masters knowledge of the universe to equip others, a barista makes tasty coffee, musicians make pleasing sounds, a finance person makes elegant solutions for building a stable economy, equitable businesses. When you do these things, you are creating and participating and refining beauty. You're imaging God. You're in the backyard practicing juggling. And you think it's only valuable because you beat your record. What you don't know is he's standing inside watching you and loving the fact that you're engaged in his thing. Your God-given design to manifest his authority and power and beauty and justice in the world. And if we could for one moment stop thinking that work is about personal prestige or proving ourselves or self-justification or compensation or work is about the approval of others and instead consider that maybe there is elegance and beauty and justice be pursued because elegance and beauty and justice are good because they describe our Father who loves us. Man, if we could start to think about work that way, it would be a delight. Work is imaging. The second thing is that I would encourage you to think about it is work is service. In the Gospels, when Jesus summarizes uh, what it means to be fully human and fully alive, he says it this way. All of life is about loving God and loving your neighbor. It's how he summarizes what the Bible calls the law. That's the biblical summary of the good life. And what love is, is love is not a positive disposition towards someone. It is not simply finding someone likable. Uh, That's insulting to the concept of love to even say that that's a pale imitation of it. That's a ridiculous idea of what love is. That's often what we mean. Love is denying the self in the pursuit of the well-being of others. Love is denying the self in pursuit of the well-being of others. Here's how we know it. 1 John 3.16 teaches us explicitly. John says, here's how you know what love is. That's what the Bible says. Jesus laid down his life for us. Here's how you know love is. Jesus showed you. He denied himself for the well-being of others. Service is at the heart of love. Service captures the heart of love. The reason that we're lonely on this campus is not because there aren't nice people. Y'all are all nice. Stanford is full of nice people. You might think you're alone because there just aren't the right type of nice people for you. It's not why we're alone. Everybody here is really nice. The reason we're lonely is because instead of denying the self in pursuit of the well-being of others, we are denying the well-being of others in the pursuit of self. And in so doing, we are co-authors of our own misery most of the time. Work is not something that, res- that resides outside of this paradigm to love and serve. It's not like, oh, you love God and you love your neighbor when you're doing a religious thing or trying to think about your own personal therapeutic self-improvement, but then you go to work. Rather, you're going to find appropriate joy and meaning in work when you see it not as the place 
of finding your personal happiness, but actually when you detach from work your need for self-fulfillment and see work as a place that you serve God and serve your neighbor. You will never be happy in work until you begin that process. Robert Bella is a sociologist actually at Cal Berkeley. He died about four years ago, five years ago now. And he's famous for this study called Habits of the Heart where he studied, uh, did, did these enormous surveys of young people in America and he explored um, this term called expressive individualism, if you're familiar with that, and the way it's affected us as a society and as individuals. And he observed what, what expressive individualism is, the way, one of the ways he described it is making the individual sacred. That means that the main thing you think is, the main thing in life is me and my happiness. That's what expressive individualism is. For us to engage life, you think, me thinking, okay, today is about Britain's desires and Britain's happiness in Britain. That's expressive individualism. And he says that as we embrace that as a society, we've, we're unraveling. That's actually the cause of most of the stuff we're unhappy about in the news cycle right now. And he makes a compelling argument for it, and it actually ridiculously confirms a lot of what Scripture says. But here's one solution he proposes. He proposes several, but one of he says is we should re-engage the possibility of seeing work as a calling to contribute to the good of others instead of means for personal advancement. Here's the thing. Try this for a week. Work is not for you. Work is where you give yourself for this, for us for one another, for God, for the one who loves you and made you. Because you see the biblical call to love and serve your neighbor and love and serve God, those things are intermingled. They can't be separated from one another. I can tell you this as a father. If you love me, you will love my children. And if you love my children, I feel loved. Same is true analogously with God. When you love God, you love his children. When you love his children, he, love, he knows you love him. Work and work, and this means that we need to begin to deploy our imagination, and it means we have to deploy deeply personal honesty about us. Work is service to God and neighbor. Here's what I mean that we then have to deploy our imagination, and I'd love to talk with any and all of you personally about this and the things that you're thinking about. But you have to begin to imagine how writing code, how consulting, how teaching, how landscaping can be service to God and neighbor. And it can be. But here's the other thing, besides imagination, to begin to connect service and love with your work. We also need to be deeply honest as to whether or not we're dressing up selfish pursuit with the appearance of selfless service. Because we can do that. Again, we're nice people. We can mask self-absorption and self-obsession pretty well with a friendly exterior and a clever pitch about the benevolent impact of our chosen career. But that is not the same thing, and it will not feel to you like the same thing as engaging work, as loving service to the God who made you and loves you, and loving service to the people he made in his image. Uh, yesterday I listened to this podcast about two different chains of laundromats in Tampa, Florida. Two different owners that tried to explore what does it mean to own a chain of laundromats as a Christian. And it was really fascinating. Uh, the reason, what, you knew, what they kind of talked about in the laundromat industry is this, is the laundromat industry is one that typically exploits the poor. 
they're set up in poor neighborhoods where people don't have transportation. There's often only one laundromat because there's no competition and because people from the neighborhood can't travel. The laundromat is poorly serviced. Uh, they don't pay the employees well. They don't train the employees. They're often very unsafe. They're often uh, undercared for. Um, and, and it's one of the ways people exploit lower-income communities. And so this podcast examined these two chains, both owned by Christians. One a laundromat was owned by a Christian, and this is what he thought it meant to be a Christian owner to try to honor God with his work. It was poorly maintained. It was dark. It was unsafe. The staff was not taken care of, and the staff didn't care for the customers, but there were murals of Jesus and Bible verses on the wall. Does that sound like it honors God and serves his image? The answer is no. The second chain. (laughs) I just want to be clear on that. Uh, The second chain was actually taken... The the way it kind of turned around is... um, a banker for Goldman Sachs in London who had roots in Tampa uh, heard about this kind of chain that was falling apart and he decided to leave Goldman and uh, buy up this chain of laundromats in Tampa and uh, said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make great laundromats. They're going to be well lit. They're going to be safe. They're going to have excellent equipment. I'm going to train the staff. They're going to have great customer service and they're going to be kind to the customer. That honors God, that images him, that service to God and to our neighbor. It means that as we think about jobs and work, things that are typically pursued as end-all, be-all goals, things like profitability and efficiency, they have to be there, right? For the laundromat chain to exist, those things have to exist. But they're not the end-all, be-all goal. Rather, those things are brought into their proper place and held in proper proportion and not held out as our primary goals. Because instead of laboring for those things, you labor to serve and honor the Heavenly Father of justice and beauty who loves you and the people He cares deeply about. And when you reframe in your own imagination work as service to the God who loves you and to His people, what used to be something that was very mundane, something that was in, has been incredibly fear-infused, trying to find happiness by finding the perfect job again, that thing can all of a sudden become a fulfilling journey of living for something bigger than you. If you've never seen or read The Princess Bride, please come find me afterwards so I can point you in the right direction. But there's the story of The Princess Bride, as it begins, there's a farm boy and there's this girl named Buttercup. And if you know the story, the, the way the story is encountered, both in the book and uh, in the movie, is a grandfather is telling his grandson about the relationship between Buttercup and Wesley. And when you meet the two characters at the beginning of the story, Buttercup is ordering Wesley around the farm because all he is is a stable boy. And so you watch the story unfold, and it's kind of cute and funny and all that kind of stuff. And the grandfather is telling his son this story. He says, Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Farm boy, polish your horse's saddle. Farm boy, I want to see my face shining in it by morning. And Wesley would always say, As you wish. Farm boy, fill this water, please. He would always say, As you wish. And then the grandfather tells his son this. as He's telling the story. He says, One day, she realized that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. Here's why I bring that up. 
It's not about what he did. It's about who he loved. And in fact, you will have a broader capacity to enjoy all kinds of different labor, like polishing the saddle and bringing water jugs, if you've found someone that you love doing it for. It's not about the size of the impact of your work. It's not about the money that you make. It's not about the personal prestige you require. And if those things are the big things for you, you know what that is? If those things are the things that you pursue, that's a concession to the fact that you have found nothing to love other than yourself. And if we begin to see and engage work as love and service, you'll rediscover a whole new way of delighting in work. Because you have someone worth working for. How many of you love getting woken up at 4 a.m.? How many of you love getting woken up at 4 a.m. to change someone's diaper? Nobody, right? I've done that with four different children. It's terrible work. None of you want to do this. No one in the history of the billions or trillions of people ever lived. They're like, that's my passion. That's what I want to do. I hope all of you get the chance to do that because here's what you'll experience. You will do the worst work ever with delight because you have someone to love. You think you haven't found the job that you can be passionate about. That's not the problem. You haven't found anyone to love and to serve. Work was supposed to be our service. Two practical things to do and then we're done. Try this. Wherever you are, spiritually, in your process, if you're thinking like, ah, I don't know if I'm Christian, I don't know if I'm here, just try this for a week, for this week, to begin to recover the goodness of work. Engage an active mental and spiritual process of recovering. And do this before every class, every class each day, and every time you open up your laptop or you begin to study, this will take you 60 to 90 seconds a day. Just try it for a week and see what happens. Before you start your tutoring session, before you start your part-time job, whatever it is, everything each day that you start. So you should be doing this a couple times a day. Just pray this. And even if you've never prayed before, try it. God, this is your world. You've set me in it to be like you by creating, organizing, and caring for creation and the civilization we've made. I'm exploring your world to grow in wisdom and knowledge about it. Thank you. Help me honor you and see how I can serve others. What's that? 12 seconds before every class? 12 seconds before every homework assignment? 12 seconds before you start your part-time job? Try it for a week. Even if you're not a Christian, try it. See what happens. See what happens if you begin to pray a new why into the task before you before you go into it. Pray a new why into the task. Do it before each class period this week. Try it for a week. Please, just try it. I want to know what happens. I'm going to try it. All right, that's the first piece of practical advice. Second one, change your questions. I put new questions in the handout. We're all asking a lot of questions about our work. These are from a a guy named Cornelius Plantinga who wrote a book called Engaging God's World. And he said this, to strive for the kingdom in choosing a career... And if you're unfamiliar with the term kingdom, kingdom means a world in which God's gracious love and character is the governing principle of all things. So to strive for that kind of world, a Christian will ask himself questions more like this. Where in the kingdom does God want me to work? 
Where are their great needs? Where are their workers few? Where are the temptations manageable for me personally? With whom should I work? How honest is the work I'm thinking about doing? How necessary and how healthy are the goods or services that I would provide? How smoothly could I combine my proposed career with being a spouse, if that's your calling, or a parent, or a faithful child of aging parents, or a friend? How close would I be to Christian community in which I could give and receive nourishment? Is my proposed career inside a system so corrupt that even with the best of intentions, I would end up absorbing a lot more evil than I conquer? And here's the big one. What would my career do for the least of these? Try new questions. Try praying. Try new questions. And if you... uh, uh, Close with this. If you feel... I'm not good at this. Whoa, this is a massive shift. I'm not good at this. Or this feels really foreign to me. That's okay. That's actually normal, and it's probably a sign of health and wisdom if that's how you feel. If you're like, I got this, you probably haven't heard what we talked about. Because what we're talking about is taking work from the thing that we burden with the task of giving us value and justifying us. That's the burden we've given it. We're going to talk about that next week. And instead reorienting and reinvesting work with its original purpose of how you honor your Heavenly Father and love and serve Him and one another. That's a huge shift. And here's the thing, there's only one way that shift can happen. There's only one thing that actually begets love in your heart that creates your capacity to do things out of love. Love. Love is the only thing that begets love. Only in coming to explore and experience God's love for you can free you to then walk into the messy and beautiful process of trying to love Him one another. And that's why actually at the heart of recovering an awesome, beautiful, rich picture of work, at the heart of that is exploring the fact that the height of God's love for you is in the life of His Son, Jesus, who though He was God, became the servant of all. And what was Jesus' service to you? His service was meeting the demands of the justice, the demands of justice that we each created, all of us, by bringing nasty and ugly things into God's world. We're all co-conspirators in breaking things. We're all being guilty of that and seeing that Jesus at the cross takes the place of the guilt to bear away our just deserts for how our selfishness broke this world. That is His love for you. That is his service to you. That is his self-setting aside for you. We go to the cross, we go into confession, like Erica said, not to feel guilty, but to find out there that we are loved in spite of our failure. And when the power of that love begins to dawn on your imagination and begins to break out in your heart, you can turn around and you can try. Tomorrow we can try. To love as imaging God, or to work as imaging God, and to work as service and love, and we'll botch it tomorrow. But still try to love each other in the same manner. Love is the only thing that begets love. If you want to begin to engage work as love, go to the cross and see God's love for you in Jesus. Let's pray.